This is Good Together, the podcast that inspires you to create change in the world every day. Keep listening for actionable tips and tricks to incorporate eco-friendly practices into your daily life. We've been featured by Apple as the number one podcast for conscious consumers, and we can't wait to welcome you into our community of changemakers. I'm Lisa. And I'm Laura. We're the founders of Brightly.eco, the new platform for conscious consumers. We believe in supporting all creatures, great and small. And our team of experts show you how to live and shop responsibly by sharing world-changing lifestyle ideas, products, and more. To read show notes from Good Together and to browse all of the planet-friendly goodness that we feature, head to brightly.eco slash podcast. And to help spread the word about the podcast, tap on this episode and share Good Together with your friends and family. A simple text message helps us grow and create change around the world. This episode is brought to you by Sheets and Giggles, a company with a punny name but a seriously sustainable mission to make better bedding for everyone. Sheets and Giggles bedding consists of sustainably made 400 thread count eucalyptus sheets that are static-free, moisture-wicking, use no insecticides or pesticides, and are half the cost of their store-bought competition. Good Together listeners get 15% off at checkout by using the code BRIGHTLY at SheetsGiggles. If you're into interior design like me, it can be so tempting to get trendy pieces for your home that you're then stuck with later once they go out of style. A more sustainable option is one you might not have thought about before, renting your furniture. We got the chance to try out Oliver's furniture rental service, and I'm seriously impressed with the gorgeous terrazzo coffee table that's now sitting in my den. I get to have a trendy piece and not feel guilty about sending it to a new home once I'm done with it. Oliver makes sure your pieces are new when they come to you by using extremely high refurbishment standards and sanitization. And at the end of the road, all Oliver pieces go to their donation partner, Habitat for Humanity. Check out oliver.space to browse all of their sustainable and chic options and use code GOODTOGETHER to get 10% off your order. The term carbon emissions is one that gets thrown around all the time in the eco-friendly and sustainability space, but you'd be hard-pressed to get a really good answer out of someone when you press them as to what carbon emissions actually means, what they're actively doing to uh, suppress their amount of carbon emissions happening every day. Um, And, you know, if you press people further and said, well, exactly how are carbon emissions affecting climate change, you'd probably get, I don't know, a thousand different answers. So in this episode of Good Together, Lisa sat down with Laura Diaz, a climate scientist and the host of the EcoChic podcast. She joined us to explain the ins and outs of carbon, how and why carbon is priced, how it affects global policy, and what we as consumers can do to support carbon neutrality in every single way, um, from our 401ks to the light bulbs in our homes. So this is a really interesting podcast. It's one that is highly uh, recommended if you're looking to learn more about what exactly carbon emissions mean. Um, And so we're excited to get into it. 
don't forget to go to brightly.eco slash podcast for show notes and more episodes. Hi, Laura. Welcome to Good Together. Hi, thanks for having me. Yes, super excited that we finally made it happen. And uh, yes, um, Laura is a climate scientist and the host of the EcoChic podcast. We've been following your podcast, of course, uh, for um, quite a while. And um, really looking forward to our conversation all about carbon. It doesn't sound very exciting, but we promise you will want to listen to this episode. And Laura, to start off, us off, I would love for you just to tell our listeners about you, your podcast, and anything else you would like um, our listeners to know. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for that intro. I feel like carbon is a really cool topic right now for me personally. So like you mentioned, I do host a podcast called Eco Chic. And it's a show about climate science and sustainability, eco-conscious lifestyles for the everyday woman, essentially. Something that I think is really important is that climate science and climate information should be super accessible and digestible, relatable. And I want people to understand that what you and I like to talk about on the day-to-day when it comes to environmental issues They don't have to be these big lofty scientists. It doesn't have to be a fear-inducing conversation when we talk about climate change. It's something that impacts everyone. I like to say that the environment doesn't operate in a vacuum. Everything that you and I do impacts the environment in some capacity. So that's really what I aim to do. I aim to educate, and I aim to really encourage solutions and some critical thinking skills when it comes to conscious consumerism. So, Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, and when we talked for the first time uh, about a month ago when things were completely different, but I remember how like we were so in sync in terms of how do we make all information about sustainability, be it carbon emissions or ethical fashion, more accessible and understandable and uh, not guilting anyone uh, and not kind of putting anyone into different boxes. So uh, we're completely in sync on that with you. Yeah, I think that's an important point to make just that you shouldn't have to feel like you're put in a box when you're talking about these things. Uh, I think I mentioned to you EcoChic started about two years ago. It'll actually be two years this week when I was in graduate school. Thank you. It's really exciting. When I was in graduate school, I was studying climate science and I was just kind of taken aback that there wasn't more digestible information for society about climate change. You know, it's something that everyone's aware of in some capacity, whether you agree with it or not. And I was just like, why aren't more people talking about this? Why aren't more people concerned with the way that their buying habits are impacting climate change, with the way that their transportation, with their vacations, all of these things impact the environment in some way. So it doesn't have to be put in a box. You shouldn't have to feel like you're being scolded when you're talking about climate change. It's just about educating people. Exactly. Yeah. And um, let's talk about carbon and yeah, let's explain it to everyone. And I will be the the, the person who doesn't know much about it. I, I love <laughs> being the interviewer here. Yeah. Uh, so can you start us out with the basics? Uh, what we need to know about carbon, carbon pricing, carbon emissions, kind of the main definitions. And I think you were, uh, you kind of nailed it uh, in terms of, you know, why we're not talking about that because we don't understand it. And for me personally, if I don't understand something, I probably won't be talking about it. So Let's explain the carbon stuff to our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that when we open up the carbon conversation, it's important to just recognize that carbon is a gas. Carbon is just like any other element on the periodic table. What we're concerned with when it comes to climate change and global warming is carbon dioxide. So more generally, when we talk about greenhouse gases, there's two things that we're keenly concerned about. 
the lifetime of a greenhouse gas and the warming potential of a greenhouse gas. So that's where the global warming piece comes into it. So when we talk about carbon dioxide, opening up your conversation, carbon dioxide is really like the baseline element, the baseline gas when we're talking about global warming. It's the thing that we are keenly concerned about. It's what is most present in our atmosphere and really what has the largest impact on warming just because of the sheer volume of carbon dioxide. Does that? Yeah, no, I love it. I love it. I love the scientific background and it's like, okay, I too, I did take chemistry before, so <laughs> I should have known that. Um, so yeah, so what is the main problem in terms of the carbon emissions? Uh, who are the main offenders? Um, how we as society, like, uh, you know, there's a lot of facts about, oh, fashion industry is the worst offender, or is, is it um, air industry, airline industry, uh, who is the, uh, the biggest offender? Uh, and what is kind of the situation on the country and state level? Yeah. Okay. So we have a lot to unpack. So the mm-hmm. first thing that I want to say is that carbon dioxide is not the only gas that we're worried about when it comes to greenhouse gases. There are lots of different greenhouse gases that are warming the atmosphere. And so like I mentioned earlier, we're concerned with two things, a lifetime and a warming potential. So I want to just like break that down a little bit so that when you hear about other greenhouse gases in the news, or if you hear about other companies putting out greenhouse gases, it gives you a little bit of context. The issue with lifetime is that it has to do with quite literally what it sounds like. It's how long the gas lasts in the atmosphere and how long it can be warming the atmosphere. So when it comes to warming, we talk about warming potential. And the warming potential is just how much heat it can trap, the ga- how much heat the gas can trap when it's in the atmosphere. So just from a really simple perspective, you can think of it as like maybe a water droplet. Water is a gas that we have in our atmosphere, and it holds moisture, it holds heat. So when you think about maybe a really humid environment, it's a different kind of heat than a dry environment. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. It does. Okay, just to help set the scene a little mm-hmm. bit. So if you're thinking about like a Florida versus somewhere in the desert, it's a different yep. kind of heat because you have water in the air. So when it comes to warming potential of other gases, so whether it's water or we talk a lot about methane as well, the warming potential of other gases is measured against carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide is really like the baseline gas, like I was saying, so to speak. So I just mentioned methane. That's one that we know is 27 times more potent in warming our atmosphere. So it has a warming potential of 27. Methane is the gas that's usually talked about When we talk about food waste, so when you have food in a landfill, when you have any sort of organic matter, so food, if you have yard waste, hair, like any sort of organic matter that's decomposing, if it decomposes without oxygen, it's not going to naturally biodegrade. It puts off methane. So that's usually the conversation that we have around methane. It's around food waste in landfills and why that's such a problem with warming our atmosphere. Wow, that's very interesting because we just had a conversation uh, last week and of course it's the episode that's launching as we are recording this week about food waste and um, very good that we're kind of connecting the dots finally that when we are wasting food, methane is released and methane has, as you said, 27, what is it called? 27 times uh, more warming. So it's a a global warming potential of 27. Uh And the carbon... And carbon is the baseline. So carbon dioxide is like, it doesn't necessarily, it's not assigned the number zero, but it's just that everything is measured against carbon. 
So methane is so much more, uh, has so much more warming potential. That's, that's very interesting. Like I didn't know that at all. So that's how much more we should care about food waste, right? Yes. So food waste is, I mean, it's not only a problem from the waste perspective, but also if we are breaking things down in a landfill, that's why we have so many conversations now about compost and the value of composting. It's because your food can naturally degrade with oxygen and then you break down and you get fertilizers and you get things that are actually really healthy. And I always like to kind of remind people like this is kind of a deep memory, but in a science class in school and they show you the carbon cycle and it's the air and it goes into the land and Mm -hmm. it just cycles around. That's what we want to happen with the carbon that is stored in our food. And we want to be able to break our food down naturally with oxygen so that carbon cycle can just continue to be as efficient as possible. That's why it's so important to compost. That's that's, that's why it's so yeah, compost. Yeah, thank you for connecting the dots again. It's um it's amazing. Even I mean I'm learning a lot already. Good. And um so yeah, let's talk about we talked about food um food waste. Let's talk about um maybe airline industry, fashion industry. How what are the other ways we uh, other ways we are emitting uh carbon and methane or are there things that are contributing to the warming temperatures? Yeah, absolutely. So when it comes to the airline industry, transportation is probably the most impactful thing that you do for your carbon footprint. So if mm-hmm. you've ever taken one of those carbon yes, footprints. Yes, I did. I did. Yeah. Those calculators online, the thing is always how many trips do you take a year in a plane? And a lot of that has to do with jet fuel. It has to do with the landing and the takeoff. And the airline industry is a major polluter. And while a lot of airlines are kind of what's the word I'm looking for? They're kind of reacting to this backlash as people become more aware of the airline industry. You see a lot of claims that airline industries want to become carbon neutral or that they're going to sell carbon offsets or things like that. Yeah. So that's important because we definitely want to be offsetting the greenhouse gases that are being put into the atmosphere. But a lot of the time when it says carbon offset, that means they are buying some, you know, share of trees or they're buying into some sort of measure that's going to be a positive for the atmosphere. So that doesn't mean that they're changing their fuel. That doesn't mean that they're changing Mm -hmm. their policies. That's just like allotting money somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, we kind of, you already started us uh, with policy. Let's talk about policies. Why are they important? What kind of uh, different policies are there on the business level, on the government and country level? Um, And I want to also talk specifically uh, policies in the U.S. as, and again, international ones as well. Maybe we can start with carbon tax. Yeah. Yeah. This is a great conversation, especially as we're going into this political season. We hear a lot of conversations around carbon taxes. And a carbon tax is is pretty basically what it sounds like. It's a tax on carbon. So the important thing when it comes to getting people, getting industry, getting anyone to really change their habits surrounding greenhouse gas emissions, it has to be backed financially. And I don't mean to say that in a way that's negative in any capacity, but it's just like at the end of the day, economics will prevail, finances will prevail. There are a lot of people who are picking renewable energy sources versus traditional, you know, dirty coal because it's the more financial option. It's better for their pockets. A carbon tax is quite literally like a price on carbon. So that's when you talk about carbon pricing. That's being talked about a lot during these political campaigns. It is putting a dollar amount on the amount of carbon that's associated with some sort of human activity. So let's say that's flying. And for every or actually, let me back up. So the 
the issue with that is that it's really hard to determine what carbon is truly worth depending on the situation. So carbon is measured in gigatons, which is really hard for people to conceptualize, or tons of carbon, and it would be a dollar amount. So it's to say that if an industry emits, let's say, like 10 gigatons for every ton of carbon that they're emitting, it's $100. So that $100 should, in theory, go towards funding more climate solutions or more carbon neutral activities or offsetting it in some capacity. So carbon taxes are a little tricky because Mm -hmm. no one wants to talk about taxes. No one wants to add taxes. But at the end of the day, if we're not pricing carbon correctly, we can't really allot money towards climate solutions without that policy backing. So yeah, you. I think you had a whole episode about carbon pricing, right? So mm-hmm. can you give us a bit more details in terms of like carbon pricing and who does that? Is it the government? I mean, obviously it's the government or it's, um, you know, international organizations. Yeah, the UN has a mm-hmm. panel um, that's associated with the Paris Agreement, actually, that talks about financing climate solutions. We could talk about the Paris Agreement in a minute if you want, but yeah. essentially there are groups of economists around the world that price carbon. The problem with pricing carbon is that you don't want to price it too low because then you're not getting the amount of offset money that you want in order to offset those issues. And then if you price it too high, you don't want anyone to, you don't, you're concerned about backlash. You're concerned about how is the economy going to react? How are corporations going to react? So carbon pricing is really tricky. And there are economists around the world that are purely environmental economists, that they're energy economists, And there are people who dedicate their whole life work to what is the price of carbon. And then by the same token, there are people who say, what is the price of clean air? What is the price of water? So it's a whole industry of economics that's a really interesting one to dive into. But carbon pricing is tricky. And at the end of the day, even though it's tricky, we do need some form of financial policies backing carbon solutions and backing the, let's see, backing greenhouse gas reductions from from corporations, the emissions that are associated with things like, uh, like you mentioned, fashion, like travel, like any sort of big industry that's happening in the U.S., they're cutting corners in order to meet that bottom dollar. And so are those cutting corners really associated with additional greenhouse gas emissions that don't need to be happening? Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah, let's talk about carbon offsetting and um, how it can, how it is done on international level, on the government level, and then maybe we'll take it to the business level. Um, and later in the episode, uh, as usual, we'll love talking about how you personally as an individual and as consumer can reduce your carbon footprint. But let's talk about this on the more macro level about carbon offsetting. Yeah. Carbon offsets is an industry... And it's really a concept that's actively being worked on. For a long time, carbon offsets were managed by nonprofit groups, essentially, that you could say, oh, I'm taking a flight that's X amount of miles. And they would calculate, okay, you're probably going to emit you know, X amount of carbon. So for this price, we can plant this many trees. So a, a lot of, what's the word I'm looking for? A lot of it was done through these third-party nonprofit groups groups. And there are organizations like the UN that is more actively working on carbon offsets. There are organizations like the IPCC, which is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. They're really like the world leader. They're a group of research scientists that works on climate solutions. They work on climate modeling, and they figure out what kind of climate solutions would really 
look like and how they would play out long term in the world. So they talk more about climate. Um, I'm sorry. So they are they're working more on carbon offsets and what that would really look like pricing wise. Mm-hmm. But carbon offsets are a tricky field, and it's something that's still very actively being worked on. Yeah, because for me, like uh, you, you mentioned, like a carbon f- offset. I personally always thought about yeah, carbon offset, planting trees, and that's kind of what you're saying. That's that's literally what it is, and it almost sounds like oversimplifying it. Uh, a very yeah. kind of complex um, idea. Yeah, um, well, it should be a complex idea, but right now, yeah, it is much more yeah. simple than people mm-hmm. realize. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, another thing that uh, I, you discussed uh, in your episode uh, on carbon emissions and carbon pricing and policies is cap and trade policy. Can you explain uh, what that is to us? Yeah, yeah. Cap and trade was a policy proposal that was really let's see, it was a policy proposal that was getting a lot of attention during the last presidential election. And I think that it's kind of on its way out, again, for the same reasons that it's hard to price carbon. Mm. It's hard to figure out exactly how much carbon is an okay amount for a corporation to emit and be associated with. So a cap and trade policy is a situation in which, let's say you are a corporation that emits, you know, five units of carbon. If the government says, okay, you're only allowed to emit three units of carbon, that's what you are capped at three, you have these two other units of carbon that you have to figure out how to reduce altogether. So it's essentially a policy that's trying to cap the amount of carbon that's associated with certain business activities. And when I say carbon, it's just like all greenhouse gases, whatever is being emitted by that corporation. And then on the flip side, if you're a corporation that's allowed, again, five units of or what was the what was the number I was giving? If you're a corporation that's allotted, again, three units of carbon that you're allowed to emit, but you only emit one, you could mm-hmm. sell those additional like two carbon credits. So if you've ever heard the word carbon credit, that's really where that comes from, this cap and trade policy. So the trade comes in saying like, if you are allotted more credits than you really need for your mm-hmm. business activities, you can trade them and sell them with other businesses. Wow, that is yeah. complicated. It's almost like you're making kind of like financial uh, deals with carbon. Which... That's exactly what it is. That's exactly what mm-hmm. it is. So that's a problem because how do you know how much a business really needs? How do you price that carbon? And what happens if you allow businesses to emit more than they're already emitting? Do they have this incentive to now emit more greenhouse gases because they were allowed 10, but they were originally only using two units of carbon. Wow. Yeah. Do you see what I'm saying? It's, yeah, it's yeah. complicated. So I think for that reason, it's kind of on its way out and being replaced with the carbon tax idea. Just the idea that if we were to price every single unit of carbon, at the end of the day, corporations want to cut costs and make their overhead as low as possible. So they're going to want to cut back as much as they can on whatever they're being taxed on from this greenhouse gas emissions perspective. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we you have to, as a government, as people like making up these laws and rules, you have to think about the environment, but also how do you incentivize corporations, businesses, mm-hmm. but all, and also human beings to reduce carbon. And uh, yeah, I think it's super important to not oversimplify it, but at the same time, yeah, when you have these equations and selling carbon, uh, that gets too complicated. And it's very yeah. easy. Once things get too complicated, it's just easy to hide things, right? Yeah, we definitely don't want our corporations to be hiding more stuff uh, than they're already doing. Um, 
Let's talk about Paris Agreement, that uh, Paris Climate Agreement that you've mentioned. Is this uh, is Paris Agreement kind of the uh, the standard, the main kind of international agreement on climate change that uh, uh, exists right now? Yes, the Paris Agreement is an agreement that's really the international standard because it's held and it's really operated within the United Nations. And like I mentioned, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, they're a group from the United Nations. So they have this research group, they have policy meetings, and they can really encourage a global response to climate change. I think that's something that is sometimes missed in the media, just the necessary the necessary global response, this real unity of every single nation to say we are going to cut back because carbon is something that's not location specific. Once it's in the atmosphere, it really can travel. It encompasses the whole world. We all are subject to warming. So it's really necessary that we have a very encompassing international agreement when it comes to greenhouse gas emission mitigation. And that's what the agreement essentially does. It works on mitigation and adaptation, which are two different ideas that are sometimes put together very often. And it also looks at finance, which we just mentioned, just the idea that we want to be putting some dollars behind these decisions and these policies. So the difference between mitigation and adaptation, I just briefly mentioned, Mm -hmm. is very slim. It's hard to really parse them apart, but mitigation is essentially just when you have an action that's going to slow your contributions to climate change. It's going to slow your greenhouse gas emissions. And then adaptation is when that contribution has already taken effect And you're changing your lifestyle, you're changing your society to kind of adapt to climate change. Thanks so much for listening. We'll get back to today's episode in just a second, but we wanted to take a break to recognize a few companies that we've partnered with. Right now, there are thousands of ethical brands out there which can be confusing and overwhelming. This is why Brightly exists. We are your guide to doing good in the world through conscious consumerism. We personally vet and try products from every single brand that we partner with, both on our podcast and on our platform, Brightly.eco, so that you don't have to do the research yourself. Partnerships like this are what helps Brightly and our community grow and increase our impact. Thank you. Laura, you've probably heard me talk all the time about my love for sheets and giggles. I've been sleeping on their new sustainable eucalyptus sheets for the past three months straight. I recommend them a thousand percent. Every week, I wash them and put them back on the bed right away. They're my go-to sheets. All of my other sheets, even the ethical ones, are taking a long break. After hearing you rave about them for so long, I finally got to try their new eucalyptus comforter. I'm a weirdo. I really like having a comforter on my bed all the time, even in the middle of the summer. And I haven't been waking up hot when I've been using this one from Sheets and Giggles. It's a great ethical and sustainable alternative to the down one we used to use that's now sitting on our guest bed. Another thing I love about Sheets and Giggles is that they don't use plastic packaging and their materials don't use pesticides. So they're kind to our animal and insect friends. They also plant a tree for each sheet set that is sold, and they are passionate about giving back. They give 10% off to their customers who donate their old sheets to homeless shelters and have donated over $40,000 to Colorado COVID relief. That's awesome. Good Together listeners get 15% off at checkout by using the code BRIGHTLY at sheetsgiggles.com. So I just went over to Laura's house recently and was shocked at how clean it is, especially since you guys just adopted a new puppy. 
<laughs> Very funny. We are definitely not neat freaks at my house, but it's been pretty messy lately with all those pups. When I find cleaning products that are natural, safe, and incredibly effective, I have to shout it from the rooftops. I gave my place a once-over with Puracy products right before you got there, and it did look pretty sparkly if I say so myself. Seriously, when we started learning about Puracy, we were also excited to learn that they're 100% made in the U.S. and their team is obsessed about plant-powered performance. They also offer more than just cleaning products. My personal favorite I've tried from them is their organic hand and body lotion. It's very moisturizing, but not greasy. It's also great to use right after their hand sanitizer, which is also super effective. Puracy has over a million customers and thousands of five-star reviews, so don't just take our word for it. Although, we hope you do. (laughs) (laughs) Head to puracy.com slash brightly for 10% off your order. That's very interesting. And you know, um, I don't know when exactly when this episode will air, but we are recording it during in the middle of the COVID-19 global crisis. And I think, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the way um, governments, states, countries, um, and again, world leaders are responding to COVID-19 crisis um, kind of highlights how important it is for all of us, all countries to unite, right? And in a response. And uh, I think we, uh, up until now, probably, or maybe a week ago, we haven't been united front and it shows how weak we are uh, as human beings, as a society, uh, when we uh, don't stand in a united front against the, you know, global crisis. Um, Yeah. So that just kind of made me think like, uh, and, um, uh, kind of talking quickly about COVID-19, I think like, uh, hopefully, my hope personally is that, um, you know, we will use as a society, we will use COVID-19 as a global reset, right? To realize what's important uh, for us and things that are not important and to realize how we should be dealing with uh, crisis uh, in, in the future as a society, as human beings at large. Um, at least that's that's my hope for, for yeah. it. Yeah, well, on that note, I yeah. think that individuals are going to come out of this pandemic, this crisis, this stay-at-home situation with a lot of perspective, I hope, yeah. in, in terms of not only just living with less, you know, really using up your fridge before you have to go to the grocery Absolutely. store again. And even things like telecommuting, because for work, there are very often, you know, if you work in a large corporation, maybe there's a building across town where you have to have a meeting. But if you're sitting there for an hour, is that something that you could have just done via Zoom so that you don't have to associate those emissions with driving across town, sitting there, driving back? So even small things like that, I think people will become more conscious of long-term. Yeah, that, that's my hope. And um, yeah, I want to give a shout out. A couple of weeks ago, uh, I've done an interview with Liz Segrin from Fast Company, and we've talked about kind of like um, how we're dealing with COVID-19 as a society and what we can do as uh, just as individuals to cope with this um, trauma uh, in a way. And um, so if you guys want to listen to it, we'll drop the link in the show notes as well. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think the small things add, uh, add up, and especially the transporta- transportation part, you're absolutely right. It's it's the most, it's the biggest offender in terms of climate, uh, carbon emissions. Um, and yeah, I will be really curious. There, there are already some like news floating around in terms of like uh, in China, the air is clear for the first time in forever. Um, Fake news were that, that dolphins in the Venice uh, in Venice uh, that was unfortunate fake news. But I really uh, I'm really curious to hear how the uh, how 
the world looks like after this crisis is over in terms of environmental impact because we as a society slow down a lot and um i think what we it would be very interesting to see what um what changes it brought in terms of um our environmental impact yeah absolutely absolutely i've been reading those new stories and then i looked into some of the research and <laughs> Carbon levels are down. The atmosphere is responding very positively. And it's interesting to think that all of these things are happening because we're just staying at home. We're being more mindful about our interactions and our mm -hmm. economy. And it's unfortunate. It's incredibly unfortunate. Like, I don't want to misconstrue that at all. It's incredibly unfortunate that this is happening right yeah. now. It's happening. To, it's impacting people's lives, their finances. Yes. It's impacting a lot of people. But I also hope that people begin to realize that in order to have this global positive response, this natural response, the drop in greenhouse gas emissions, we didn't have to have a pandemic. We could have done this on our own. And it's not necessarily going to happen overnight again, but we have the time now to think about policies that are going to encourage clean energy. It's going to encourage us to decarbonize our economy. And it's going to hopefully allow us to think long-term about policies that are just supportive of that overall natural response that we're looking for exactly so i'm curious do you know i'm always looking to, for like some amazing examples of countries or states um, that are doing things right in terms of carbon emissions um, who are leading the way yeah yeah when it comes to leading the way in terms of carbon emissions climate solutions usually a few years ago uh, especially while i was in graduate school the golden child of climate solutions was usually germany because mm, Germany has wow. a lot of really good tech solutions and policies that are going to incentivize society really to encourage things like electric vehicles. They have a cash for recycling program. Basically, Germany makes it really easy for citizens to buy into climate solutions. And then as of recently, Costa Rica is really coming out in the forefront in terms of renewable energy. So Costa Rica has their own sort of Green New Deal that I don't personally know too, too much about. I've read about it very briefly, but it's a Green New Deal that really encourages renewable energy. And they're the country that right now is most aggressively working towards carbon neutrality. So that means that they are not going to emit any more than they produce. That's and awesome. Yeah, Costa Rica is really cool because they've been, they're, they've been uh, running on renewable energy for the last three or four years, 100% renewable energy. Wow. And most of that energy is hydropower, which I don't think people talk about enough when it comes to not renewable energy all. because mm -hmm. not everyone has access to the ocean. But I mean, for that reason, keep in mind, Costa Rica is a much smaller country than the US. So exactly. they are able to really look at their solutions and scale them in a way that makes sense for their whole country. And then Costa Rica is also geographically in a really good place for renewable energy, for harvesting renewable energy, because yes, they have hydropower, like we said, they're on the ocean, but they also get really good wind, really good solar. They have access to geothermal energy because there's geothermal pockets. If you've ever seen like the Arenal volcano in Costa Rica. So they have access to a lot of yeah. really great options when it comes to renewables in order to transition. So I think that they're a cool example because Costa Rica was able to say, what do we have available to us? How do we make it work for what we need? And they've been doing it for years and it works really well. 
That's great. I mean, yeah, as you as you said, like uh, that was my thoughts exactly. Costa Rica is a very small country, and like you mentioned, all the resources they're almost like in a perfect condition uh, mm-hmm. to to be uh, climate neutral. And of course, not every country is in this uh, has all these resources, um, but. I really hope that uh, we can learn a lot from Costa Rica. And of course, Germany. Germany is a completely different situation from mm-hmm. Costa Rica, and they're already doing that. Um, let's talk about business uh, businesses. Yeah. Uh, what is happening on the business level? Uh, what are the poster childs for the climate change uh, in a positive way um, in terms of businesses? On my end, I've recently been introduced to um, a certification co- called Climate Neutral. It's mm-hmm. carried by brands that measure, reduce, and offset all of carbon generated by making and delivering their products. I wonder if you have heard of that or some other examples. And again, yeah, I just want to uh, hear poster childs in terms of uh, brands taking a stand on this. Yeah, yeah, because brands are definitely taking more yeah. and more of a stand when it comes to their environmental contributions. Consumers are asking for it. There's no way that you can deny climate change and the fact that your corporation has some sort of impact on the world. So it definitely looks like brands are waking up more and more. And I do uh, have some familiarity with the carbon neutral certification. I also personally, I like to look for B Corps. I like to look for B Corporations because it's a very transparent supply chain. If it's a B Mm Corp, it really shows that not only are they really reducing their emissions as much as possible, but it's also a very ethical supply chain. And things are done in the most, I don't want to use the word pure, but in the most positive way that they can be done. I think a good corporation that is not getting as much attention as it used to because it was really like one of the first B Corp positive corporations is Lush. Lush, the cosmetic Oh, yeah. I, I didn't know that. Yeah. Lush is an awesome example of a company that stood behind sustainability really from the beginning. They're a big advocate for using food products like whole food products in their um in their in their products and even if you ever get a face mask from Lush they tell you to put it in the fridge because it's made from real food products they have a closed loop system for all of their containers so they have a program where if you collect your containers you bring them back and they'll wash them and sterilize them they do as much in house as they can everybody is paid a living wage it's a really positive corporation that was on the forefront of sustainability and just a holistic understanding of what it means to be a really eco-conscious company. So I really like Lush as an example. I don't think that they get enough play yeah. anymore. Yeah, I yeah, think maybe because they they kind of became uh, became really big and like usually you don't think about big su- successful corporations mm-hmm. um, uh, as the most sustainable and transparent one. But that's great. Uh, yeah, thank you for giving them a shout out. I, yeah. We haven't heard of them for a while. You're absolutely right. Yeah, I like so, them. I also think mm-hmm. um, in terms of clothing, you mentioned fast fashion, yeah. and we know that the fashion industry is incredibly polluting. A lot of that has to do with textile waste. A lot of it has to do also with transportation. If you think about where the textiles are coming from and where they're manufactured and getting to the stores. And there's a lot of just network connectivity issues that contribute to this problem when it comes to fashion and the emissions associated with it. And I think that Everlane does a really good job to pull back the curtain a little bit when it comes to pricing transparency. Mm -hmm. I think that's something that I want to see more businesses do in the future. I don't know much about their like worker conditions, their ethical standpoints, but from what I understand about their factories, specifically the denim 
factory is the one that I love to talk about because Mm -hmm. denim is a terrible polluter. If anything, it's the worst polluter when it comes to textiles. Absolutely. And they have a really transparent pricing policy when it comes to denim. They're really upfront with what their denim factory looks like. Nothing gets aggressively dry cleaned before it goes out, you know, washed and dried. Um, So I think that they're also a really good example of pricing transparency that I'd love to see more businesses go towards. Mm-hmm. And yeah, talking about denim, I want to give a shout out to a documentary called River Blue. I don't know mm. if you heard about it. Um, we um, showed that documentary a couple of uh, years ago now, but yeah, it talked about uh, how polluting the denim industry is and just like the process of creating your favorite jeans. And mm-hmm. uh, the, why it's called River Blue, it's um, in China. And uh, sometimes you can see the, the rivers completely change the color of water, like to bright pink, because... Um, you know the the factories there they just pollute the rivers when they they are producing denim and coloring it so like you can literally uh, the, the one of the quotes there was you can literally uh find out what's the the color of the se- next season will be in fashion by looking <gasps> at rivers in china yeah it's completely devastating uh a documentary is really eye opening and um and does profile a lot of businesses that are doing things right in terms of denning production. So yeah, River Blue will link to it as well. Oh yeah, I have to watch that. That sounds yeah. really interesting. Um, so yeah, let's talk about our favorite things. What we uh, we as consumers and citizens can do to lower our carbon emissions. Um, we already talked about transportation. Uh, we all, already, of course, talked about a little bit planting trees. But uh, beyond transportation and planting trees, what we can do uh, to reduce carbon emissions on our own individual level? Yeah, definitely. I think it's important to think just going off of our last little chat about brands waking up to sustainability and their contributions. If you're buying something from a large corporation, I would encourage you to just Google the name of the company with sustainability plan. Because again, we're not living in a time where corporations can really avoid the fact that they're having an environmental footprint. More and more businesses are drafting sustainability plans. And some of them are, of course, more robust than others. But if you're curious, your favorite big company should have some sort of sustainability plan. Sometimes they call it a resiliency plan. And that's a really easy thing, again, to just Google and find a PDF. So I would encourage you. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, when it comes to voting with your dollar, something Mm -hmm. else that I love to talk about is actually investments. I think that a lot of people talk about voting with your dollar when it comes to what you buy day to day. I recently had a conversation on my show that really opened my eyes. It wasn't super recent. It was probably about three months ago, but it really opened my eyes to what it means to vote with your dollar from a super holistic perspective. If someone out there has a 401k, if you work in any sort of business that matches your investments, if you have a savings account somewhere, you're investing in other businesses. And a lot of people don't always realize that the businesses that they're investing may not be things that align with their personal values. So I encourage everyone I come across to look at ESG options and options that are really supportive of businesses that make sense for you and what you actually want to be investing in. So I think that's a big tip. And then yeah, when it comes to, yeah, I think that a lot of people that we don't talk about investments enough in the sustainability space. And, and I want to give a, a shout out really quickly. Sorry to interrupt. Mm-hmm. I actually, yeah, no. I was on mute. That's why it took me a second. Um, I um, I focused my uh, MBA on finance and specifically impact investing. So I'm familiar mm-hmm. a little bit with um, 
kind of like the green investments. Uh, and yeah, one mm-hmm. of the foundations and uh, investment companies I want to give a shout out to is Culvert uh, Impact Capital. That's kind of the, what they're called. They have a foundation too, but they also have um, a product that you can use as an investor uh, if you want to invest into, you know, good things. Uh, and uh, mm-hmm. thanks for the shout out. I, I knew that a long time ago, but I think... Um, in terms of uh, financial resources, there's still a lot of work to be done in terms of educating consumers. Uh, what are their green investment options are? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot of education still to be done in that space. And even on the topic of day-to-day consumer life, I really encourage people to think a little bit more about efficiency. So I'll be really honest with you in saying that I'm not a tree planter. I'm not a gardener. If I'm going to plant a tree, I will most mm-hmm. likely, you know, give my money to an organization exactly. that's going to participate in carbon offsets. So I'm not going out there and like planting a bunch of trees to offset my own emissions. But I think from the day-to-day like home perspective, something that's really interesting for people to think about is efficiency. I think home efficiency is not talked about often enough. It's not sexy. It's not as cool as buying, you know, green products or carbon neutral, whatever it may be. Yeah. And I think that efficiency should be thought of as a fuel source. I love to say that because there's things like making sure your home is properly insulated or making sure that you can sometimes open your windows instead of always using an air conditioning. Make sure that you're really mindful about how you are choosing to buy light bulbs. Are you buying the right light bulbs for your situation? So things like that, I don't think get enough play in the sustainability space because they're they're not attractive necessarily. But not only do they end up saving you money, you have to use less fuel long term. I think that's the important thing is that we're not always going to want to be looking for the next fuel source. How can we do better with the fuel that we already have in place? Exactly. And yes, something about like what I've done in terms of home efficiency is literally uh, we recently bought a small space heater. And mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it does, it's not sexy to talk about it, but it, it is a, it impacts and lowers our carbon emissions. So I don't have to have a heater in the house, uh, you know, to a maximum degree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's talk about uh, actionable tips uh, for living ethically. We've talked, we've just talked about carbon emissions, but any other tips, maybe not even uh, that don't even have to do with carbon emissions specifically. Uh, do you have anything for our listeners? Hmm. I think that maybe something like very curious that again, something like buying <laughs> space heater um, for your house, something really um, unusual that you've done maybe personally. Something unusual. Ooh, okay. I have to think about this a minute, but I think that I think that there are a lot of opportunities for creativity when it comes to home solutions. I think that just encouraging people to live with less and do better with what they do have, it kind of backs up to that efficiency conversation. Yeah. But let's say I have like an old t-shirt that is not really doing anything for me. I'm not necessarily in a place to, you know, sew something up and really DIY like a beautiful outfit out of it. But can I cut it up and at least use it as rags to clean my house? I think that um, I think that creativity really is the what's that saying that innovation or necessity is the do you know do you know what I'm saying? It's like yeah, necessity yeah, breeds that. innovation or something like that. Yeah, mm-hmm, exactly. And I think the sustainability conversation absolutely has to buy into that. Just the idea that not only do we want to do more with less, but also 
it's an opportunity for you to have a little bit of fun, figure out a new hobby. How can you really make a whole meal out of whatever's left in your fridge? How can you now this, this movement of people wanting to bake their own breads and learning how to be self-sufficient without constantly having to buy into the flashy green solutions that are hitting the market and not knowing if they're really green. And I advocate a lot for just asking questions and, you know, critical thinking skills. That's one of my favorite things to say, Mm -hmm. but just encouraging people to think a little bit deeper about the choices that they're making on a consumer level. And if you're purchasing something, if it has to be in a package, what's the best packaging option for you? Can you truly recycle that? Make sure that you're not recycling things just because you want to feel good about recycling. And, and, um, and I think the, my, like my closing thoughts, essentially my takeaways are always just to think of this sustainability journey as truly a lifestyle change. It's not something that you have to do overnight. It's very much about baby steps. It's about replacing one meal a week with a meatless option, or again, getting a space heater instead of filling your whole house. Mm -hmm. And it's not like you're going to wake up one day and have a perfect low waste lifestyle, a low impact lifestyle, Uh, but educate yourself and have fun with it. Really think about how you can make it your own and don't put yourself in a box. Like we were saying at the beginning. I love it. Love it. Yeah. Um, So let's give a shout out um, to maybe one or two other brands. I know you mentioned Lush already. Uh, What are some other ethical brands or products that you've discovered recently that you want to give a shout out? Yeah. um, hmm. So I have been really enjoying beauty counter makeup. Nice. I've heard about them. I haven't tried that yet. Yeah, they're fabulous. So I spoke with um, their SVP of social mission, Lindsay Dahl, on my show, and we talked a lot about policy and the way that cosmetics are so unregulated in the United States. And it really got me thinking about toxins that are allowed in our products. And I want to make sure that I am only absorbing things into my skin that are healthy for me, that aren't endocrine disruptors, that aren't things that are known to be carcinogens. There's a lot of shadiness, a lot of gray area when it comes to the cosmetics industry, and it's really up to brands to regulate themselves. So I like Beauty Counter because they're really upfront with what's in their products, what they will never use in their products, how they're getting involved with policy, things like that. So I really do like their, uh, their stance there. And then let me see. So I gave you like a beauty skincare option and then, hmm. This is a tough one. I love having business conversations with people who work in sustainability. Like I love to break down from a shark tank perspective, like how people got to where they are. Let me think. Yeah, of- I've, I've actually um, attended one of the social business conferences a couple of years ago and somebody from a beauty counter was talking um, about how they get involved with policy. Maybe it was Lindsay herself, but yeah, it was really impressive to me um, that, you know, it's part of them, not just mission, but their business model that they go to Washington literally mm-hmm. to lobby for changes in the policy. That was really impressive. Um, if you, while you're thinking, um, uh, my next question would be, what excites you the most about the ethical and sustainable movement right now? And again, right now we're recording during the COVID-19 crisis, but in general, or maybe you're seeing uh, brands, um, brands, governments responding to COVID-19 in a certain way. Uh, But basically, what is happening in the ethical and sustainability space that you're really excited about? Yeah. So two things. I thought of another brand, something Mm -hmm. that I use. Something that I use every single day is a bedsheet. I love bedsheets. I'm someone who just enjoys like the ritual of sleep, essentially. 
And I have these bed sheets by Etitude, which is a company that makes bamboo lyocell sheets. We just have- released the episode like, oh, I think oh, a week ago. Good for <laughs> yeah. you. Yeah, I love, I love my Etitude sheets. They are the most delicious sheets that I've ever owned. That's how I have to describe them because they're really luxurious. They're a really ethical brand. They're very transparent in the way that they're, um, the way that their fabrics are produced. I like the idea of bamboo being used more and more. I really do think that bamboo is on the frontier. I think bamboo and hemp are two things that I see coming up in the future as really big champions in the climate conversation because they're incredibly efficient in producing, um, producing fabric. They're really efficient in producing when it comes to hemp. It's like so much, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It is so little nutrients and space and resources that you really need to grow both hemp and bamboo to make them usable and useful. So I really do like my attitude sheets because I think bamboo is on the forefront. I so love it. when it comes to, yeah, when it comes to things that excite me about the climate conversation and sustainability solutions, I think that like we were saying there's a lot of innovation happening now just truly out of necessity. I'm excited to see where technology goes, especially when it comes to things like battery storage for renewable energy. We don't necessarily have the best options yet when it comes to battery storage for using our renewable energy after it's produced. And I'm excited to see where that goes so that we can have every single home in America tied up to some sort of renewable system. And, and let's see. And then my other thing would just be, yeah, resources and making more creative solutions out of natural resources, being kinder to our land, looking at practices like very ethical, thoughtful um, construction practices. I would love to see just the way that humans interact with the land. I'm excited to see people get better at it and do it in a more eco-conscious way. Love it. That's very interesting. Yeah. Well, I think that's it. It was really uh, nice talking to you, Laura. And I I personally learned so much about carbon, our carbon emissions and how uh, we uh, can truly make change in terms of um, lowering our carbon emissions as a society and as individuals. Yeah. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Good Together. As always, you can get show notes and explore lots more content related to all things eco-friendly living by checking out brightly.eco slash podcast. And don't forget to join in on the conversation that's happening on our Facebook group. Simply search Good Together Ethical Shopping and it'll come up. You can also leave us a question through voicemail. The link is on brightly.eco slash podcast. If you're into social media, give us a follow on Instagram, Facebook, and all of the channels. Our username is brightly.eco. Finally, we want to leave you with a reminder. Every day is a chance for you to create change, and you're already covered for today since you joined us here on the podcast. Stay kind and live brightly.